from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Today, Rabbi Michael Bayo and I are going to discuss one of the most important figures in Judaism, Maimonides, Musa bin Maimun. He's a philosopher. He's a rabbi. He's a physician. He's so many things. We're clearly not going to do justice to the breadth of his teachings and the questions that he helps us address. But he's someone who's personally important to Rabbi Bayo. And I'm looking forward to getting the rabbi's insights in this conversation. Good morning, Rabbi. How are you? Good morning, Adrian. How are you? Good to be again with you here for a conversation with the rabbi. And yes, you picked one of my favorite topics uh, to talk about. Um, And as you said, in this uh, podcast today, at least, we will not do full justice to, uh, to the Rambam, as is known in Hebrew, which is the acronym for his name, Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon, known uh, to the uh, non-Jewish world as Maimonides. Uh, Musa Ibn Maimon, as you correctly stated. So we're not going to do full justice in this uh, session. We might have future, future sessions as well about him because, as you said, he's such an important and cardinal, a pillar figure in Judaism uh, he also influenced uh, others, like uh, St. Augustine was influenced very much by his teachings. But for sure, in Judaism, he is a pillar. In fact, we have a saying that from Moses to Moses, there was nobody like Moses. Uh, meaning uh, this saying uh, wants to highlight that just like the first Moses in Jewish history, that received the Ten Commandments from God, liberated the Jews from slavery in Egypt, brought us into the land of Israel, gave us the Torah. From that Moses to this Moses that we're talking about in the 12th century, there was nobody in between. Uh, and I would add to say that maybe from that Moses to our times also, there was nobody like Moses. Um, Maimonides was born in, uh, just I'll give you a very, very quick biography for those who are a little bit less familiar. Maimonides was born in Spain in 1138 um, and then uh, um, passed away in 1204. Uh, when he was uh, young, he was born in Cordoba, uh, but when he was young, about the age of uh, 20, around that time, uh, even though the part of Spain where he was living was under Muslim rule. But within the Muslim um, uh, different tribes and factions and empires, there was war. So a group of Berbers from Morocco invaded Spain. They were called the Al-Mayahadun. And they were much more religiously fervent in their understanding of Islam than the Muslims that lived in Cordoba at the time. And so they wanted to impose Islam by the force, forcefully, to those who were not Muslim. So as a result of this forced um, conversion uh, attempt, Maimonides and his family, together with many other Jews, they ran away from Spain. 
And they came to Morocco for a very short period of time. They escaped there. And then from there, soon after that, uh, Maimonides settled in, uh, in Egypt, in uh, what it's today, old Cairo was fostered at the time. And aside from about one year that he spent in Israel, trying to see uh, and visit various cities in Israel, he lived most of his life after Spain and, and Morocco in Egypt, where he was the chief rabbi of the Jewish community. And all of his children and the grandchildren stayed in that position of the head of the Jewish community for 300 years. And he was also the uh, physician for the royal house in Egypt for Salah Adin. Uh, so a great position of influence, great position of authority, great position of interchange of, of ideas with the royal house. Now, before we get into some of the details of his thought, his teachings, his writings, let's just pause for a minute and reflect on what your opening narrative tells us about the medieval world. Because in many ways, we are talking about an organization of, of uh, people and places and power that is very, very different than today, a world of, in which the same territories are divided up into nation states. So there's something rich and important, I think, in some of these intersections and conjunctions and so on. We know, for example, that Maimonides was heavily influenced by many of the important Islamic thinkers that had come before him, Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd. Absolutely. We know that this is a literary, philosophical, uh, scientific, although it's really proto-scientific tradition to which the West owes a huge debt because the writings of Aristotle had been lost to Western knowledge and were only recovered later by being translated back from Arabic. You're absolutely correct. Maimonides is participating in this tradition. Right. He's reading and writing in Arabic, and he's a Sephardi Jew. And this is something that is a theme that I know you are passionate about. Right. Talk a little bit about some of these conjunctions. So uh, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, we should start from the fact that um, on the one end, yes, Maimonides continues and is the highlight of a very rich Sephardi tradition, Sephardi meaning Spanish and Portuguese Jewry, rich tradition where for a long period of time, we're talking many centuries, about maybe 700, century, 700 years, there was what it's called the golden years of the coexistence between Muslim, Christian and Jews in Spain. Now, was it really golden? Ah, so uh, debatable. By the way, whenever anyone tells you about the golden years, whether it's the 1950s in the United States or anywhere. Uh, right, exactly. It's always debatable. Exactly, right. Where everybody treated the same way in front of the law? Not really. But it is undeniable that these centuries were a period of time where Islam uh, culturally grew and produced wonderful work of culture, Judaism did as well. 
and they were and they worked side by side. There wasn't the, as we say, the rabbi in the Sephardi world was not only a rabbi, as we find in the Ashkenazi world, that often rabbis, that's their profession. They are rabbis. They are that they lead their communities. But more often than not in the Sephardi world, especially in this time, the rabbi is also a philosopher or is a poet or he is a, 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 a general uh, leading armies for the sultan uh, or he is a, a doctor. And uh, so they are able to take information and data and from multiple discipline and make them much more holistic. And Maimonides is right there. And it's absolutely true that Western world had completely lost through the Middle Ages, the, the teachings of Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and they come through us again, through the translation from Greek to Arabic, through the great Muslim philosophers, and that's how they come to Maimonides. And then, once again, the Western world, the Christian world, reconnects with those philosophers through the translation from the Arabic into Latin. Especially the Aristotelians. I mean, uh, to just a minor minor point is that Plato had, had survived and the Neoplatonists in medieval Christian philosophy were continuing to write increasingly, uh, <laughs> I don't want to mischaracterize what is very serious work, but it, it was taking some of Plato's basic ideas and mapping them onto a world in which a feudal system and the dominance of the Christian church had created this really weird kind of social order. And, and the Neoplatonists were very much a part of that. I think their work is important and should be engaged with. But there's something about the natural philosophy of Aristotle, the attention to the, to the real world, the observable world. The, it's an empirical tradition, if you will. Yes. That was lost and becomes so important in informing uh, future inquiry and what comes to be called, uh, although we should be careful of all of these labels, comes to be called the Enlightenment comes to be called the Scientific Revolution and so on. Right. But here's where I want to dial in and zoom in a little closer because I think you could reveal something to us. You've stated to me that Maimonides is one of the most important thinkers and in many ways most uh, misunderstood. And, and here's what I think you meant when you said that. I'd like you to clarify it. You said that to some denominations in Judaism, he is Maimonides the rabbi. To others, he is Maimonides the philosopher. Right. Why the difference now in the way he's read in the contemporary world? That's a wonderful question. And it's a very Pandora box-like question. It opens up so many possible answers and directions. So I will try to make it justice. Or um, Maimonides, as we said, he's a rabbi. And as a rabbi, he approaches Judaism and life through the prism of a Jewish person that cares very much about his religion and his community. And at the same time, doesn't want and cannot run away from what in his time was the accepted truth of philosophy, of what we call science, what they would 
they will call it all philosophy. Everything was under the big umbrella of philosophy. But he cannot ignore what the great mind of his time and of prior times have taught. So, for example, in his time, the medicine of Galen was the predominant understanding of the human body. And he refuses to disregard that in order to accept maybe a different um, uh, uh, system. He accepts that and he merges that within Judaism. He accepts the understanding of Aristotle on so many aspects because he understands and he believes that they represent the truth of reality. And he refuses to live in a world, in a religious world, that is in conflict with accepted truth of life, natural life, laws of nature. Now, they used maybe different terms that we use, but that was their frame of mind. And so, fast forward many centuries, or even if we go from the time of Maimonides, there was always a conflict in Judaism between those who wanted to accept the truth of mysticism over the aspects of nature, or those who wanted the um, synthesis between the laws of nature and Judaism. So, for example, when the Torah says God spoke to Moses, what does that mean? Does it mean that God actually spoke like we are speaking? Or do we need to understand that allegorically, metaphorically? Well, we all understand that if we are going to say that God does not speak in the way that we understand speech, because he doesn't have a mouth, he doesn't have vocal cords, he isn't, etc., that opens a Pandora box about understanding all of Jewish text. Then it becomes very interesting on which part of the text shall I accept at face value, literally, and which part of the text shall we accept metaphorically. So throughout Jewish history, since Maimonides, there were those who did not want to accept Maimonides' allegorical reading of the Torah. And therefore, they only accepted him when he codified Jewish law. Because that is less controversial from a theological perspective. Because Jewish law tells you, what you have to do and what you cannot do and what you can eat and what you cannot eat and what to how to behave. So it's not, it's much less theological in that sense. And then you have those who wanted to accept Maimonides 
not maybe so much for his legal codes, but for his philosophical uh, understanding of theology. And so that is the tension that often exists among those who study Maimonides between um, uh, the rabbi and the philosopher. And it's a tension that exists in Judaism between what it's called, you know, Athens and Jerusalem is what is the um, importance that we're going to give to rationality. So you're referring here to that he organized his work in a couple of pretty significant, dare I even say, encyclopedic projects. One is the Mishnah Torah, right, which is a fairly significant 14 volume, if I'm reading correctly. 14 volume, 14 volume, and it's still today. It is the only work on Jewish law that encompasses all of the aspects of Jewish law, including those aspects of Jewish law that are not applicable anymore since the destruction of the temple 2,000 years ago. Is a work of that scope possible? His goal was a complete codification of the oral Torah. Law. Yes, the law. So that if somebody had his 14-volume set and had mastered the written Torah, they wouldn't need anything else. They would have their authoritative sources. Right. You would have everything there. What strikes me about some of these projects, I think, for example, later on of, of Diderot and the Encyclopédie, the idea that we would somehow take all knowledge and put it into... Well, he, he meant it... Maybe in the age of the internet, that seems increasingly improbable, but... Right. He meant it as all of the knowledge until his time. But that was supposed to be a way for... Jewish communities, and in both on the communal level and on the individual level, to know how to behave. So it goes into the details of kosher laws, into the details of marriage laws, the details of divorce, transactions, just how to live your life as a Jew. But the Mishneh Torah, it's not a theological work, meaning he writes theological works like the guide of the perplexed. So it's not that a Mishneh Torah encompasses all knowledge, encompasses all Jewish legal, behavioral, applicable law. I'm struck by some of the parallels between another legal interpretive tradition, which is widely misunderstood today, and that is Sharia law. If you look at any of the four major schools of Islamic legal jurisprudence, they are commentaries, interpretations, codifications on exactly the same kinds of issues. They are about practices. They are about contracts. They are about the very common everyday things that might be adjudicated in a court before a qadi, an Islamic judge. Right. And at the same time, you also, whether it was under the Almohad dynasty, whether it was under the Ayyubid dynasty in Egypt, whether it was, you, you had these separate courts because the Islam of the day had space for Jews to take up their concerns about marriage and divorce and property and so on with the Jewish courts and Christians to do the same thing. So, you know, depending on which community you were part of, you had access to a court with... right. 
the ability to make a claim. Someone stole my chickens. My neighbor built his wall onto my property. Um, I don't want to actually pay my ex-wife. Right. These kinds of things. Exactly. And as we said many times, Judaism and Islam uh, share a lot, especially when, from, from, you know, from, from the theological and practice uh, focus that both religion place so much attention to the day-to-day do and don't do how to wash yourself, how to pray, how many times you have to pray, which direction to pray, um, who can I marry, who can I not marry, uh, what can I eat, when can I eat, etc., etc. So much attention. Can I have honey? Right. <laughs> can I have honey if I'm in my menstrual period? Like all right. of, the, all you of know, those things, exactly. The minutia. All the minutia that, uh, jokingly, uh, sometimes I say, you know, that uh, we Jews are obsessive compulsive and probably Muslims are as well because of the minutia that sometimes people that are not familiar with our with our both traditions and doesn't appreciate um, the importance of the minutia in a religious life, that people from the outside of other traditions, they don't really understand why those minutia are so important. But for us, they are very important. For Jews and Muslims are the minutia that fill our everyday life with holiness. It's our behavior. And I'm speaking now for Jews. I'm not speaking for Muslims because I'm not an expert in that. Uh, but for Jews, for sure, is the minutia of everyday life that in the service of God, that is the goal. And, 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 and as I was saying the other day to a friend of mine, I was uh, learning with a friend of mine, and I was saying to him, in Judaism, we do not have the separation of secular and religious Ideally, they are all together. Uh, it's, an, it's not that I open a door into my religious life once a day or once a week or once a year, and then I close that door and I go into my normal life, my secular life. No, the idea, the goal is to bring holiness into mundane uh, aspect of life. So my entire day-to-day, from the moment I wake up to how I put my shoes on, to how I go to sleep at night, um, is embedded with behaviors that we hope are proper behaviors to better myself and in service of God. The Mishnah Torah was compiled over 10-year or so period, and it was written in Hebrew. Yeah. The Guide for the Perplexed comes out uh, uh, 10 years later, or is finished 10 years later, was published long after that. Yeah, it also takes him about 10 years each. And is written in Judeo-Arabic, which is classical Arabic yes. using a Hebrew alphabet. Right. With some Hebrew words, yeah. With loan words mixed in. Yeah. yeah. Judeo-Arabic, for those who don't know, is also the language in which many of the documents that were discovered in what's now called the Geniza, a cache of records, texts, court records, and all the rest that was discovered in, in Cairo and really changed some ways in which 
this important period, the, the 11th to the 13th centuries, were understood. It's fascinating to me that, again, we're, when the text is a legal interpretation of the Torah, it's written in Hebrew, when it's a philosophical attempt to synthesize a rationalist tradition with Jewish theology, it's written in Judeo-Arabic. And now here in the modern world, very few people in everyday life outside of a scholarship or the, the rabbinate read any of those languages. Right. So you can buy The Guide to the Perplexed on Amazon for $9.95 or whatever. You can listen to it on-, on Yes, uh, that, but that, that translation, I don't like that translation. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about this thing, which is the way in which these texts, which were embedded in their moment and in their tradition, which were a significant contribution to thought and theology, the way in which these texts now live in the contemporary world. You've told me that uh, you have engaged in a daily study of Maimonides for 25 years. Maybe even more, yeah. Why? Since Maimonides, Judaism either accepts Maimonides' teachings or refutes Maimonides' teachings. Either or, you need to confront yourself with Maimonides. Is like uh, studying philosophy, and whether you agree or not with Aristotle, you have to deal with Aristotle. You know, I think it was maybe Mortimer Adler who said, you don't read Aristotle, you only reread Aristotle. Exactly. Yes. Wonderful. So whether today a person is a Maimonidean or whether he's an anti-Maimonidean, whether he's a complete mystic or, or not, you need to confront yourself and either accept or refute Maimonides because his legal work is the basis for all subsequent Jewish legal works. The basis to the extent that often people just copy and paste what he said and create a new work and then they change just a word here and a word there. That's on the legal perspective. On the theological perspective, and this is where we get into the more controversial part of Maimonides, he codified what are known as the 13th principles of faith. Up until that time in Judaism, nobody, with a few exceptions here and there, but really Judaism did not have a code of Jewish fundamentals on a theological levels. It is Maimonides that lives in a world that is in contrast and competition theologically with Christians and Muslims that he needs or he feels that he needs to come up with what are our Jewish fundamentals. Muslims believe in one God, just like Jews. So if we cannot create the difference between us and them, it would be easy maybe for some people in his time to say, okay, let me become Muslim. Why not? If it is the same God. Oh, also Muslims don't eat pork. Oh, also we don't eat pork. Meaning there is so many similarities that 
it could lead people to from the Jewish faith to accept the the faith of the majority. And Maimonides wanted to protect the Jewish community from doing that. And so he writes, that's one of the reasons. So that's he writes the 13 principles of faith. And uh, these 13 principles of faith have become kind of the litmus test for Judaism. The irony and the tragedy is that the overwhelming majority of Jews throughout the ages and even today, and especially today, that swear by the 13 principles of faith, that even study the 13 principles of faith, they do not study what Maimonides actually wrote and his formulation of the 30 principles of faith, but they study somebody's understanding because that um, a copy of his original 13 principles is the one that has been printed in the prayer book. So now you have a situation that every Jew has his own prayer book, and at the end of the daily prayers in the morning, you have the list of the 13 principles. Jews believe that's the, that's the list. I'm going to abide by this list. But that list is a forgery, meaning it's not what my mother is really said. And even though in the title, they look the same, when you study both lists and you do a comparative study, those two lists in many aspects, have nothing to do one with the other. So the irony is that today, for many Jews, the 13 principles of faith are the litmus test for being Jewish, but they are not really studying or abiding by what Maimonides wrote. And they have no idea what he wrote, and because Maimonides' controversial theology, his theology is not really studied. Guide of the Perplexed is studied only by scholars, is not studied in rabbinical academies, is not studied by the everyday Jew, and is uh, other philosophical treaties as well. And so we have this schism that people know one aspect of Maimonides or they know a morphed Maimonides, but they don't know often the full Maimonides. If we could just zero in on the controversy at the heart of this for a second to see if it clarifies anything, recognizing that somebody from a different school of thought might take an opposite and contrary view and argue vehemently against us and so on. At the time this work was circulating, initially even, it had mixed reception. You mean the Guide of the Perplexed? Yes. Yes. Some people thought it was phenomenal. Others yes. said it should be burned, and it was, in fact, burned. What is at the heart of the theological contention over this work? Yes. Recognizing that this is asking for a simplistic answer to a complex question and that others will disagree. 
What's the issue? Yeah, I, I will give a few points. Number one, a complete rereading of the text in a non-literal way. So God becomes, in the many aspects, an Aristotelian primary mover rather than a loving father. And for most people in all religions or in many religions, they want God to be a loving father rather than an Aristotelian prime mover. It's almost as if they want an anthropomorphic God, even though there's theological problems with this idea. Exactly. So, so they say that God is not anthropomorphic because that is what Maimonides tells you that you have to accept that. The hand of God is a metaphor, not an actual hand. Exactly. But at the same time, when they engage in a prayer, they honestly believe that if they pray well enough, maybe God will listen to their request. And so they don't understand, as Maimonides says, that they are engaging and making God anthropomorphic when they say that God is not anthropomorphic. But their behavior and their thought and their theology, God is anthropomorphic. So that's a one, one, one big challenge for many people. The second big challenge is the understanding of Maimonides when it comes of why should a Jew perform mitzvot? Why should we live our life according to Jewish law? What is the ultimate motivation? And what is the ultimate reward or punishment that we will receive? Well, the text um, and other uh, uh, theological approaches in Judaism are very clear. When we say uh, our daily prayers, it's very clear. If you do X, God will reward you. If you do Y, God will punish you. Maimonides doesn't take that approach. His approach is much more complex into what is the reward, what is the punishment, much more complex. Maimonides' approach to prophecy is very different than other approaches that we find in Judaism about prophecy. So in all of these major uh, theological questions, issues of world to come, issues of uh, reward, punishment, creation versus eternity of the universe, all of these are topics that Maimonides deals extensively in the Guide of the Perplexed. And uh, they were found to be dangerous. They were found to be dangerous by uh, some of his contemporaries and some later that at the time they burned his books. And today they didn't burn his books, but they're not studied. Uh, they're not studied. And that is, um, and that, and that creates both a problem because we are only then accepting, we're only studying Maimonides from one aspect uh, and forgetting the other. And, and it's a problem because I truly believe that if we 
could teach Maimonides for Maimonides, so many Jews would be much more connected to their Judaism. Let's end with this open question, which might lead us to a future further conversation. For Jews today, young and old, trying to navigate this world, not the medieval one, and finding a wide variety of sources, claiming authority, providing guidance, and so on, we sort of end up, it seems to me, as a very clear outsider, it seems to me that we end up with an overwhelming set of options, you know, whether you get your Kabbalah from Madonna or from something else. And, you know, you're kind of this mishmash, if you will, of I like Maimonides when it suits me and I take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I end up with something eclectic and contemporary and all the rest. What do you suggest is an alternative? I mean, should everybody go learn Judeo-Arabic to read Maimonides in the original? Right. So this is is one of the problems of, of Judaism, meaning we don't have a, a systematic church. We don't have a, you know, the high priest, the high rabbi that everybody accepts. No. Well, let me also add as an outsider that I've seen systematic churches cause great problems in the world. So yes, absolutely. Every every system has its own problems. Bureaucracy. I mean, bureaucracy. Yes. Yes. Uh, in Judaism, it's an open market of ideas. And so everybody picks and chooses um, their rabbi and everybody picks and chooses the rabbis according to what their rabbi answers to their questions are. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a problem. Uh, and at the same time, it allows for exchanges of ideas that are so useful and, and, and important. So there is the ups and downs of that. Um, personally, I think that paradoxically, it is a Maimonidean approach, a medieval approach, so to speak, of somebody that is a medieval, but he was a counter to his to to the milieu that he he, he was surrounded in many aspects that could make religion much more sense in today's modern world, because often. The religion and the God that many Jews choose not to believe is, uh, as I say, jokingly, is the bastard child of Zeus and Santa Claus. That we as modern people that have studied and we accept science and we accept modernity and we accept the scientific revolutions and all that it brings we cannot accept anymore concepts like miracles. Or it's difficult to accept concepts like miracles. What does it mean a miracle? Show me, show me, how does that work? I prefer David Hume's Scottish uh, philosopher's treatment, which is miracles only happen to people who believe in miracles. Well, that is exactly, without knowing, you quoted Maimonides. Yeah. And I presume that David, you maybe took it from Maimonides because that is exactly word for word what Maimonides says about miracles. Miracles are true only for those who witness the miracle. And who believe that miracles are a phenomenon. Right. Because for everybody else, it's atmospheric pressure. It's uh, it's something else. Exactly. 
So how can a modern young man, a young woman of 18 years old, when they read the Bible, they read the Torah, accept that the universe was created in six days, six days of 24 hours. That creates a perplexity in them. That was exactly the questions to which led Maimonides to write his Guide of the Perplexed. So the same questions that, that brought him to answer by writing the Guide of the Perplexed are the same question that we have today. How did the universe come to be? Why bad things happen to good people? Reward and punishment. Why should I behave in a certain way? Why should I keep certain traditions? What is the reward that I will get? All of these questions that often the answers that we receive normally lead us away from religion. I strongly believe that Maimonidean's answers would strengthen Jewish connection with religion and with our tradition. A person should not need to choose between their tradition, their culture, their faith, and their rationality. The two are not in conflict. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next Conversation with the Rabbi.